0: Monitor Monday is recorded before a live, online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for August 7th, 2023. Here's today's rundown. The Fiscal Year 2024 Inpatient Prospective Payment System Final Rule is here. What impact will it have on your organization? Dr. James Kennedy will talk about that. Also today, we'll hear from healthcare attorney Carol Ludwig, Adam Brenman, healthcare attorney David Glazer, and Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck.
1: Good morning, everybody. Good to walk into Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, many in healthcare are pondering the release last week of the inpatient rehabilitation facility Final Rule. The other was a highly anticipated 2024 inpatient prospective payment system. Final rule, that was also released by CMS. We're going to have more on that story when Dr. James Kennedy joins us later in this broadcast. In the meantime, we have much healthcare news to report, and so we begin this morning, as we usually do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions.
0: Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well,
2: good morning, all. As I reported last week and wrote about for Rack Monitor E-News, Levanta released a newsletter about short inpatient stays. And as I mentioned, I provided them some feedback, and they were actually kind enough to respond to me. And while I expected them to backtrack on some points, they stuck to their case examples. So what does that mean for hospitals? First, they continue to insist that the Medicare patient presenting to the ED who requires cholecystectomy or appendectomy can be admitted as an inpatient even if they're likely to go home the next day. Now they did make it clear that the patient's condition should be emergent, meaning that if the doctor is using the ED to expedite the evaluation and treatment, it would not qualify for inpatient admission. I can see that happening with gallbladder disease, but certainly not appendicitis. Once again, the documentation should support the emergent presentation. So there you go. For each case, you just increase compliant revenue by at least $6,000. You may recall they also had some case examples I discussed, a patient with angioedema and a patient with a GI bleed. In both cases, those patients seemed clinically stable, but Levanta stuck by their support of the inpatient admission, stating that in both cases, the patient was at risk of a relapse and required close monitoring. Now they seem to differentiate between close monitoring and routine observation without really any details of what differentiates those, so that's a question. They also stress that the documentation must support the requirement for more than routine monitoring. As they say, or say said, excuse me, since we do not question inpatient orders that can be supported by the record, we would approve these cases. Now, Levanta and I also had an esoteric discussion about their contention that there are medications that can only be given as an inpatient. With that, I disagreed. Their example they gave me was intra-arterial thrombolytic agents, which can be given for stroke or pulmonary embolus. But my argument was that for most of these patients, the patient's status at the moment of infusion was actually outpatient because patient care comes first, and the inpatient order doesn't get written until after the patient is stabilized, which is, of course, after the treatment was administered. This one's less significant to all of you, but for a regulatory nerd like me, It's crucial they understand the difference. Now, what should you do with all this? First, go get that newsletter. I'm going to put the link in the chat in a couple minutes. I want you to click on the link to open the webpage, but do not read it now since you'll miss out on the other presenters' segments. But after we're done, the bottom of the hour, you can go and get open that. Again, look at that link, copy it, or produce a PDF so you have it saved for eternity. Then arrange a meeting with your UR staff, your physician advisor, your compliance team, your denial team, and decide how you're going to change your processes to, to meet this these new regulations or guidelines, excuse me, not regulations. Um, especially be sure to use this document if your short stays get audited and denied. Right? If they're going to support these vague terms, we should be able to win these in appeal. I know from experience that the medical directors have def- de- definitely not been this generous in approving one-day stays, so I'm hoping that Levanta teaches their own docs how to follow these guidelines. And also, don't forget that the Medicare Advantage plans will have to follow these guidelines too once the two-midnight rule applies to them on January
1: 1st. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ron Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch? Was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is Kara Ludwig. Kara is substituting this morning for Nicole Emanuel. And good morning, Kara.
3: Good morning, Chuck, and happy Monitor Monday. Today, I want to touch on a type of investigation that affects healthcare providers of all types. Department of Labor investigations, and specifically classifying workers as independent contractors versus employees. Why does it matter? Because it's coming under scrutiny. The Federal Department of Labor, which has seen an increase in its ability to bring enforcement actions in recent years, has flagged the healthcare industry as a prime target for investigation. According to the Department of Labor, in fiscal year 2022, the U.S. Department of Labor wage and hour division recovered more than, are you ready? $32.5 $32.5 million in back wages, specifically for workers in healthcare. That's more than the recovery for workers in agriculture, retail, food service, or business services, and only just barely less than the recovery in the construction industry. So, why has the Department of Labor targeted healthcare facilities for investigations into employee misclassification, sometimes claiming millions of dollars in unpaid overtime? The issue is that independent contractors are effectively considered self-employed, so they aren't subject to federal minimum wage and overtime requirements. During COVID-19, we all know there was a huge demand for healthcare workers, and a lot of healthcare facilities turned to contract nursing and other contract positions to provide necessary health care during the pandemic. Now, as we're transitioning out of the public health emergency, Healthcare employers need to pay close attention to how their healthcare workers are classified. Now, there's no black and white answer as to whether an individual should be classified as an employee or an independent contractor, but here are six things to consider. One, how much control the person has over how the work is performed, two, the person's opportunity for profit or loss depending upon his or her managerial skill. For example, Is this a set salary, or can the individual control how much money he or she makes? Three, the relative degree of investment in equipment or materials that are required for the task. Four, whether the services provided by the person require special skill. Five, the degree of permanency and duration of the working relationship. And six, the extent to which the services are an integral part of the healthcare facility's business. Now all of these factors are important, but I want to focus on degree of permanency. Again, during the public health emergency, healthcare providers were relying on a lot of short-term provider contracts just to keep up with the demand for healthcare services. And in a lot of cases, those short-term contracts got renewed multiple times. I want to encourage healthcare providers to take inventory of those independent contractor arrangements, keeping those six factors in mind, and consider whether you might need to reassess any current worker classifications. Healthcare employers should correct any misclassifications that they find, since enforcement can be retroactive and employers may be responsible for back pay. So if someone is misclassified, the biggest risk of liability usually arises from state or federal Department of Labor investigations and enforcement actions. However, individuals themselves who think they may have been misclassified and, for instance, should be owed over time, often have the ability to bring a lawsuit either in state or federal court. These violations of wage and hour laws are often really costly, and most statutes mandate double or triple damages for violations and mandatory payment of a plaintiff's attorney's fees. So, the takeaway is to pay attention to how providers are classified. And if you can, conduct an internal audit and fix any past misclassifications. And of course, be prepared for increased audits by the Department of Labor.
1: Thanks, Kara, very much. That was healthcare attorney, Kara Ludwick. Carol is with the law firm of Nelson Mullinson. This morning, she was substituting For Nicole Emanuel. And coming up in about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Adam Brenman with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update, and Dr. James Kennedy, who's standing by to report our lead story this morning. It's Monday, it's August the 7th. You're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday.
0: The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician led nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician-advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician-advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician-advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You are invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join the effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient only lists designed for ease of use and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more.
1: Here now with a Monitor Monday Risky Business Report. It's healthcare attorney, David Glazer. <laughs> and good morning, David. So, David, as I say every Monday morning about the same time, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's the risk that your legitimate
4: concern about avoiding an improper incentive to patients will cause you to forgo programs that might be beneficial to patients and the healthcare system more broadly. In particular, I want to discuss free transportation. So, free transportation has gotten a bad rap. To be clear, there are times when free transportation is a giant compliance problem. A for-profit psychiatric hospital faced considerable consequences for flying patients across the country at no cost to receive care at their facilities. I'm not claiming free transportation is always permissible, but there are many, many situations where free transportation's totally kosher. And I wanna focus on one particular example today. I generally have very little concern when a healthcare system provides transportation from one of its locations to another. So here's my basic argument. Imagine you're a New York City-based hospital. Now, you could put an MRI in Manhattan and another one in Brooklyn. No one would argue that placing MRIs in both locations constitutes an improper benefit or kickback to a patient. It's simply the way you're choosing to provide healthcare services. What if, Instead of choosing to put an MRI in each of the two different boroughs, you chose to place an MRI in one borough. And if a patient in the other borough needs an MRI, you had a car service shuttle them across the city. Analytically, what's the difference between the two options? If anything, the second option, which is gonna require the patient to spend a considerable amount of time in New York traffic will be less appealing. Certainly there's no argument that the patient is enriched when you take them from Manhattan to Brooklyn or vice versa, after they get their MRI, the patient's balance sheet isn't any better off than it would have been if the system had two MRI machines rather than one. The bottom line is making a choice to move patients to a service rather than moving a service to patients seems entirely defensible to me and very difficult to attack. In this example, the patient still needs to transport themselves to that first facility in the system. You're merely saying, once you're in our system, we'll move you to wherever we choose to offer a particular service. No one would argue moving a patient from the first floor to the fifth floor is a kickback. Why is moving them from clinic A to clinic B any different? Now, it's not clear to me that this argument should be any weaker if the geographic range is measured in hundreds of miles. But I think the analysis is affected by things like why the system is choosing to limit the availability of the service, whether the patient is spending time as a tourist in the second location. Um, So, but for a complicated thing like a transplant, I can make a cogent argument that nationwide transportation is defensible. Now, I've mentioned that my firm does free monthly webinars. So the webinar on Wednesday this week is usually our most popular. It features frequently asked questions providing more detail about a frequently asked question, can we do free transportation? I'll put the registration in the chat box. And if you can't make it live, all of our webinars are recorded and totally free. So the bottom line is that if you just want to move a patient from one of your facilities to another, I think it's totally appropriate to channel Paul Simon and say, Hop on the bus, Gus, you don't need to discuss much,
5: just off the key and get yourself free.
4: Now, Chuck, while the song is, of course, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, I will admit my mind kept changing the lyrics, and I found myself thinking, Weird Al should really do a parody for Seesaw Manufacturers, 50 Ways to Love Your Lever. Of course, Clark, who's all-knowing, pointed out, it's already been done, it was done on a Muppet show, and I am embarrassed because I'm a huge Kermit the Frog fan, and I think that's actually what's going on in my brain. Which here's 50 ways to love your lever. So I'm just going to slink off
1: now, Chuck, and I'll turn it back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was House Care Attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Adam Brenman with the Monitor Money Legislative Update.
0: The Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous. Zellis is modernizing the healthcare financial experience by bridging the gaps and aligning interests across payers, providers, and healthcare consumers.
1: Here now is Adam Brenman. Thanks, Chuck, and good morning, everyone.
5: Cyber attacks have become ubiquitous, and they hit many industries, but did you know that healthcare tops all industries when it comes to money lost and data breaches? Between 2022 and 2023, healthcare industry losses from data breaches increased by over 8% from 10 million to $11 million, twice as much as the second most breached industry. While over the past three years, the average cost of a data breach in healthcare grew by over 50%. As an employee in the healthcare technology sector, I'm inundated by news of cyber attacks and their implications, but never more than recently. In June, I went on new parent leave from work for over a month. When I returned just two weeks ago, I had hundreds of unread emails and news alerts to catch up on. But the issue of data breaches really stood out. Here's just a taste of what I came back to. 1.7 million Oregon health plan members affected by coordinated data hack that compromised their private member data. Ransomware attack affecting facilities in a 16 hospital system around the country EDs, elective surgeries, urgent care, wound healing, and several other specialties all closed down. A sizable national healthcare facilities operator is facing facing its fifth patient lawsuit related to a July data breach that compromised information of 11 million patients from 171 hospitals across 19 states. Data security incident at hospitals and clinics operated in California, Texas, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Pennsylvania caused suspension of elective surgeries, outpatient appointments, and primary care services. One of Florida's largest hospitals hit by a three-week-long hack that obtained personal data of 1.2 million patients, including names, addresses, phone numbers, birth dates, social security numbers, health insurance information, medical record numbers. Now, this is not just a patient privacy issue or a health plan, health system, financial issue. It's also a patient safety issue especially when medical facilities are forced to delay treatments and divert ambulances. Fallout from a cyber attack on one hospital or one system often has a ripple effect causing adjacent facilities to see an uptick in ambulances arriving, patient volume, and wait times to receive care. In fact, the number of scenarios where a patient left these adjacent facilities without even being seen by a doctor was shown to rise by an overwhelming 127%. Additionally, healthcare organizations often report increased patient mortality rates, poor patient outcomes, and complications from medical procedures after experiencing a data breach. In short, Healthcare is the leading target for cyber attacks because it has numerous virtual vulnerabilities that, according to an FBI cybersecurity specialist, are nearly impossible to make completely safe. For instance, healthcare providers are a prime target for cyber criminals because they retain tons of sensitive patient data, like healthcare histories, payment information, and even detailed research that can be obtained digitally and held for ransom. Now, this dilemma is compounded by several additional factors, including one, the fact that patient uh, private information is worth a lot of money. Two, the medical industry's urgent nature lends itself to open and shareable healthcare information. And three, the medical technology is constantly becoming outdated and obsolete, making it an easy entry point for hackers while leaving the industry unprepared for attacks, even with safeguards in place. Meanwhile, the feds aren't much help in this area. Aside from setting cybersecurity standards for medical devices and some introduced legislation to mandate cybersecurity minimums for hospitals, government regulation is quite sparse. So here's my call to action. We should focus more attention on the cyber attacks bludgeoning this industry and just how prevalent they are. We should all be increasingly vigilant regardless of the role we play in the industry as a whole, because this is a crisis that can easily affect any one of us.
1: Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Adam, very much. That was Adam Brennan. Adam is a legislative analyst for Zealous. As you heard us mentioned on top of the broadcast, the fiscal year 2024 inpatient perspective payment system, the IPPS final rule, was released last week by CMS. Here now with the details on this very important story and how it could affect your organization is Dr. James Kennedy. Good morning, Dr. Kennedy.
6: Good morning. Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate uh, you all being with us today. Last week, the CMS released the fiscal year 2024 inpatient perspective rule, uh, payment system rule which will be effective on October the 1st, uh, 2023. Uh, this rule is absolutely, doesn't affect just some of us, it affects all of us who uh, participate uh, with Medicare and has certain uh, aspects to how we are paid on an inpatient basis. First and foremost, uh, the, my overall read of the rule is that there's no drastic changes. This is a typical year-to-year amendment of the DRG system uh, and such, uh, some refinement of the quality measures. So nothing really earth-shaking in this rule, but nevertheless, there are uh, aspects of this that we should be aware of. Number one, it has to do with the DRG changes. Uh, There have been some collapsing of some DRGs, for example, with appendectomy, Uh, this whole issue of a complicated appendicitis versus an uncomplicated appendicitis has been taken out. We now only have three DRGs for appendectomy with appendicitis, not just, uh, not six that we've had before. There has been the, uh, the new DRG for combined aortic mitral valve replacements uh, uh, that has been added. There is also a, um, DRG for thrombolysis or ultrasound um, accelerated uh, thrombolysis uh, with patients admitted with pulmonary embolus. We will, you will want to take a look at Table Five in the IPPS rule to get a list of the new DRG titles and and, and compare it with the old with the uh, with last uh, with this current years, and you can then see what the new DRGs are. Of significance. There has not been any uh, implementation of the proposed comprehensive CC-MCC analysis. This started, uh, well, I would say, four to five years ago, uh, was delayed a number of times. COVID then got in the way. They are still maintaining essentially the same CC-MCC status uh, this year. So, again. Functional quadriplegia, severe malnutrition, uh, these sorts of conditions still will remain MCCs. CMS is soliciting comments as to what this should look like. And what is important is that the date for getting this in now keeps moving up and up. Uh, Next year's proposals or your comments are due on October the 20th of this year. So you only have about 75 days to let CMS know what you think the CCs and MCCs should look like. For example, cardiac tamponade is only a CC, which in my mind should be an MCC, but the way, only way CMS is going to know that is for you to send comments of what you should think should be a CC or MCC. CMS does provide what we ca- what I call the C1, C2, C3 file. Uh, this is their estimation of which codes do qualify as a CC or MCC based upon cost. I will put a link on this or provide a link to you later in the broadcast so that you can learn about the C1, C2, C3 file in and of itself. Now, as it relates to new ICD-10 codes, CMS did uh, provide CC or MCC status. One that you may want to pay attention to is E88.A, wasting disease due to an underlying cause. We did not know this when the code came out, but the new ICD-10 index says that cachexia due to an underlying cause will be classified as E88.A, that will not be a CC, whereas cachexia unspecified, the R64 Chapter 18 code, will be a CC. In my estimation, if a patient has cachexia that serves as the only CC, and there's not a query for the underlying cause of the cachexia, which can be due to cancer, can be due to COPD, can be due to a number of conditions, that could be an error of omission that we failed to query for the underlying cause. So I called that a letter has been sent to CMS asking them for a correction notice. We will see what they do with that, but they received that letter last week. Of course, there's been some significant changes to the inpatient quality uh, arena, many of which are uh, revolving around the social determinants of health, This is a priority for the current administration in their pursuit of health equity. There's also quality measures as it relates to uh, deep tissue injury occurring during the hospitalization, acute kidney injury during the hospitalization, and uh, excessive radiation. I refer you to the electronic quality measures on the NQF website. One does need to become familiar with these. Uh, also, the the hack methodology, which is which can account for one percent of a hospital's revenue, will include AHRQ PSI ninety. Uh, that was uh, zeroed out uh, for this fiscal year due to the COVID pandemic. Uh, there's no mention that that will be zeroed out for this coming fiscal year, twenty twenty four. Paying attention to the uh, PSIs is essential. AHRQ should be releasing almost any minute now. The updated fiscal year 2023 PSIs, I encourage you to uh, Google AHRQ PSIs. Uh, look at these on the AHRQ website and such. Other than that, I just encourage you to read the rule yourself. Uh, ask your law firms or maybe HFMA for summaries of such and uh, return this back over to you, Chuck. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Thank Dr. You. Kennedy. That was Dr. James Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy is a nationally recognized clinical coding authority. And of course he's the founder of CDI MD. You're listening to Monitor Monday.
0: Here's good news coming your way soon is the highly anticipated Rack Monitor webcast, CMS 2024 Rule Update – Unveiling Essential Insights for Case Management and Utilization Review Preparedness In just 60 minutes, Dr. Ronald Hirsch will share his expertise, providing a concise breakdown of thousands of pages of CMS documents. You'll gain an unwavering grasp on the 2024 Inpatient Prospective Payment System Final Rule, along with the proposed rules for the 2024 Outpatient Prospective Payment System, and Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. Failure to comply with these changes exposes you to regulatory action, revenue setbacks, and compromised patient experiences. The webcast is Thursday, August 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Don't let this essential rack Monitor webcast slip through your fingers.
1: We have a number of questions that came in and some comments that we want to discuss, but we've run out of time. So that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. Thank you so very much for joining with us, and a special thanks for our panelists this morning: Adam Brennan, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Kara Ludwig, who substituted this morning for Nicole Emanuel, and Dr. James Kennedy, who repeated our lead story. And one more thing before we go: never miss a Monitor Monday. Simply visit rackmonitor.com forward slash podcast and join our community. Until we meet again, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Rack Monitor and Monitor Monday. Thank you very much. Have a great week, everybody.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.